can open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, 1 Peter 3, 8. While you're doing that, let me say thank you to all of you that uh, prayed for me. This is, I've been gone for a month, actually. Um, thank you so much, uh, Dusty, Dan, Seth, and then meal packing last week. But I'm just feeling so much better and so thankful to be feeling better. So thank you for your uh, prayers there. Really appreciate that. Yeah, so super encouraged from last week and serve San Clemente. And actually, our passage today has a lot to say about doing good. In fact, it's over 10 times Peter mentions doing good or doing right or doing the good and right thing. And then he even defines it for us and shows us what it looks like and what that means. And so you and I have an opportunity not just to have done Serve San Clemente, but to actually keep that revolution in our heart, that love of Jesus Christ going into our own lives continuously if we'll be discipled to Jesus and we'll let Peter, the leader of all the disciples, disciple us to Jesus. He wants you and I to hear that we're always to be doing good and we're to continue doing good. And he shows us some really practical and purposeful ways to do that. So that's where our message is going to go today, doing good in troubling times. And he starts in chapter three, verse eight, where he says what many preachers say, he says, finally, but he says it in chapter three, verse eight, and at, you know Peter's a preacher because he starts with finally, and then he goes on for two and a half more chapters before he finishes. So uh, I'm in good company here as Peter disciples us today. All right, so let's go through it then together. And what I'll do, I'm gonna break it into just five chunks for us and just give us some applications of what I think we can do to live out what Peter is telling us to do in his word. So we'll start at three, eight, and we'll take five different sections there and try to digest and apply each of them. Okay. All right. First Peter three, eight. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. So let me just tell you what I think is going on here. He already told us that we're a church and we're a community and we're living stones and we're being built together into a spiritual house to worship God through Jesus Christ. Like each of you matters because you're part of God's building. There's not a temple in Jerusalem where you have to go worship God anymore. The temple is the Holy Spirit of God living in believers. So you are collectively, individually and collectively, the Bible says both, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 6 both say one says individually you're the temple of God, the other says collectively you're the temple of God. God. You who have the spirit of God living in you, that's God's temple now. That's why Jesus said, tear down that temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. What he meant was when I rise from the dead, I'll send my Holy Spirit into all the world at the same time. So you are the temple. So Peter's been explaining that you're living stones built into a spiritual house to worship God. And now as a community, you're following him together. And now he wants to get to his final point. So he says, finally, all of you. So the first thing that we need to do to do good in troubling times if you and I are gonna do good in this team, you're not designed to live an individual life out there on your own, like a coal in a fire that gets separated, that coal goes out. You and I need each other, and we have to choose God's team, and then we have to choose to live in God's team. So notice what Peter's saying here in chapter three, verse eight. Finally, all of you, every single one of you needs to obey this. All of you should be of one mind or the same mind. Homophron is what it is. He says, sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Verse nine says, don't repay evil for evil and don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, Pay them back with a blessing. That's what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. 
Let's just take that into account for just a minute. He actually gives eight different things, but I won't look at all eight. But I do want to show you something that I think is a little bit shocking. If I, if, if I said to you, hey, go out and make sure everybody's on the same team and, and make a list for people, you'd probably start with something like, okay, we need a common goal. We need everybody in alignment. We need everybody to do their part. We need a strategy. If we're going to do this as a team, you'd probably go like business team alignment or sports team alignment or something like that. I just wanted you to notice when Peter says... You as followers of Jesus, I want you all on the same team. Notice how he defines it. It's character. It's, it's softness. And you know why I think he does that? Because I think you've noticed, and I certainly have noticed the same thing. We live in a world that currently right now is very divisive, very rebellious. It's very difficult. That's my stomach rumbling. So hungry right now. But we live in a, we live in a world that is very hard-hearted. Like if you watch that debate, the first presidential debate, I missed the vice presidential one, but if you watch that one, you, you didn't see like a great example of Christian maturity. That's not what you saw. What you saw was a world divided in pettiness and childishness, immaturity and name-calling. And, and what you saw there was not an example for our country to follow. So you and I aren't supposed to look at that and go, that's what I'm going to say to those Democrats or those Republicans. That's how I'm going to treat them. I'm just going to denigrate them and, and just speak foolishly and call names and interrupt. And it's, it's just going to be like a, like a stand there and punch each other verbally kind of thing. That can happen if we're not careful. Churches can get divided over all kinds of things inadvertently. We didn't mean to, but I mean, so think about leadership right now during COVID. Andy Stanley has canceled all church services through 2020. They will not meet, not for Christmas, not for anything else. He says, we'll meet in 2021. And I have people come to me and they go, if you cared about people's safety, you would do what Andy Stanley did. And then the very next person walks up to me and they go, pastor, what are you doing? John MacArthur has 7,000 people in a room and they're meeting and they're not afraid. What's wrong with you? Boom! Why aren't you like this? Why aren't you like that? Mask, no mask. Um, this is a hoax. No, it's real. It just, you know, I, don't even, I can't even begin to go down. It, like Things just flood my mind of the ways in which if you and I weren't careful, we could end up like those two men who were calling each other names and insulting each other. We could, we could be so degraded, so uh, uncivilized, so lacking honor and respect or sympathy or care or beauty like Christ that we could just end up in a fist fight in the church. You notice what he says? He's saying, you're on the same team. Two guys go for the ball and they pull it down and they look at each other and they have the same jersey on. They go, same team, same team. Well, let's work together. Like we, that's what we need. We need to look at each, look what Peter says. He doesn't talk about goals or strategies or anything. Look what he says, verse eight. Be of the same mind. Sympathize means with feeling. Feel for each other. I feel for you, bro. I feel for you, sis. I feel what you're going through. I care about you. I'm listening to what you're going through. Like we need to bond each with each other at a deep level and really sincerely care about each other. He says, love each other like family, brothers and sisters. Be tender hearted. You know, hard heartedness comes when you feel hurt. And so you feel justified because somebody hurt your feelings. And so then you became judgmental and bitter yourself. 
You've got to soften that heart and take that sin to the cross and soften your own heart. You've got to be tender-hearted to be on the same team. He's talking about these, these character qualities that you and I can't let go. We can't let go of these things. Be tender-hearted and uh, keep a humble attitude is actually also the word mind, humble mind, humble-minded. So he starts by saying, have the same mind, and he finishes at the end there, verse 8, saying, a humble mind. All of us need to humble ourselves, feel for each other, pull together on the same team, care about brothers and sisters around us, and stop dividing. Don't get torn apart by political divisions and the things that the world is doing. Don't go out there and look or sound like those that are debating or the news channels that hate each other or whatever. Don't let that become your example of what you should say and do. You and I have got to come to the Word of God, under the Spirit of God, and say, Lord, give me that tender heart, that sympathetic heart, that loving heart like Jesus that cares about my brothers and sisters so I can pull us together and not tear us apart. Amen? That's what Peter's saying. If you and I are going to do good in the midst of troubling times, we've got to be on the same team. And we can't shake fingers at each other. and divide. We've got to pull together and say, how can I help? How can I be part of the good that's happening around here? What can I do for us to move forward in doing good like you saw in that video and like you and I can continue to do as we move forward together on the same team? Verse 9, don't repay evil for evil. So just commit yourself. Just say, even if somebody insults me or does something wrong to me, I'm not going to take retribution. That's not what I'm designed for. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult. So he says, instead, pay them back with a blessing. That's the same team language right there. Bless each other, favor each other, accept each other, honor each other, give respect to everyone who's here this morning. Respect each other and just spread that from person to person to person as we listen and pray and care for each other. Okay, so that's what he says. First thing, you got to know we're on the same team, and then he underscores it, and you would say, okay, well then, why is that? Notice what verse 10 starts with the word for, and this means he's going to give us the reason. And here's what his reason is. His reason is kind of interesting, verse 10. For the scriptures say, so how does, how does Peter discipling us? If he says, hey, you've got to have this sympathetic, tender heart like Jesus to be on the same team, to work together, to do good. And you say, why? Why do we have to be tender-hearted to work together? And he says, because the scriptures say. So he's appealing to you from a worldview perspective that's different than the world. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you come to the Bible and you say, my life, my life is not about getting my own way. Look what he says. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days. Stop right there. Is that what you want? I can already answer that. The answer is, of course, is yes. That's what everyone wants. I would love to enjoy life and see many happy days. All of our hands would go up if we took a response survey right now. Yes, I want an enjoyable life with many happy days. That's what I'm trying to do. But notice the different ways that people approach that. You and I approach it how Peter has discipled us. We go to the scriptures. We go to the Bible and we say, my life is not my life. It was given to me and your life was given to you. There's a whole other way of thinking that the world thinks that says, no, my life is my life, 
and I decide what happens. And so they enthrone a God of personal autonomy. Somehow they've reasoned that they brought themselves into this world. They decided their hair and eye color. They decided their height and days. They decided their stature and all of these things. And their personal autonomy is they are their own God and they're going to do what they want to do. Their worldview is, if I'm going to enjoy life and see many happy days, I'm going to have to figure out what I want and get it done at all costs. And if that means taking from you, I will take from you because I want what I want. Personal autonomy is my God. Personal satisfaction is my goal. And you are the one that I will take from to get what I want. That's my worldview apart from faith in Christ. Your whole worldview shifts, though, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you instead say, if I want to see an enjoyable life and many happy days, I believe that I did not knit myself together in my mother's womb. I didn't choose to be born. I had no control over how many hairs, what color they were, eyes, stature, number of days. Life was given to me, and therefore my life is a responsibility to the one who created me. I didn't bring myself into this world and I don't decide when to take myself out of it. The Lord Jesus Christ has made me by him and for him and therefore I am a responsible being. I am accountable to my God and when he gave me his word, that's where my life will be found. So Peter appeals to you then as a follower of Jesus Christ and he says, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, woohoo! Let the wind blow, and a mighty wind blew through that place, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, If you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, what did I do? Oh, sorry, I turned the wrong page. Okay, here's what you do. End of verse 10. Keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Don't be nasty by what you say, and be honest and truthful, and tell people the truth. Do the right thing for the right reason. Not because you're going to gain great personal advantage from it, but you you recognize your life is dependent. It was given to you as a gift, and you're responsible for it. So don't speak evil, and don't tell lies. Tell the truth. Verse 11, turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. Over, Over 10 times through this passage, Peter says either do good or do right. So how are you and I going to do good in the midst of troubling times when we recognize and realize that my life was a gift given to me and I will give accountability for it to my creator? You believe that and I believe that. Therefore, he tells us how to enjoy life and live many happy days. Turn away from evil and do good. That's a personal call to repentance. And not just repentance from what's wrong, but a commitment to do what's right. It's not just a vacuum, I'll stop saying bad words. It starts saying good words. It's not just, oh, I'll stop looking at bad things. It's start looking at the good things. It's not just, oh, you know what, I'll just stop feeling like my neighbors are a burden. It's start finding ways to do good things for your neighbors. It's actually saying turn from evil and do good. Peter's trying to disciple us to a life of activity that is good. Just like we we did last weekend. Verse 12, he says, The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. God is watching and listening. He's very active in your life, but the Lord turns his face 
against those who do evil. Which would you rather have then in your life? God says, I'll actively minister in your life. But if you've committed yourself to doing evil, I will turn my face away from you. But if I'm, as I'm watching and listening, see that your heart is to do all the good that you can, no matter what times you're living in, I will pour out a blessing from heaven on your life. I will provide for that life. I, I will take that life forward because you're looking to me as a responsible, accountable person. Your worldview is that there's a God who made me and my life will give accountability to him. So you and I live with that worldview as we seek the Lord together. So, verse 11 and 12 then uh, remind us that God is watching and who he wants us to be. So number one, first thing that you and I have to do to do good in troubling times is to realize and recognize we're not only on the same team, we're all on God's team and we're accountable for this together. That's just worth it. Like, let's do that together. Number two, at verse 13 he says, there's some bad news in this though too. You might think, uh, some people kind of have this misguided understanding. I hear people say like, you know what? Just, it's like karma. It's like the universe kind of thing. And I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean? What are you saying? They're saying, you, you, you put good out into it and it puts good back into you. And it's like the law of karma. Like do as much good as you can and all this good floods back to you. The Bible says the exact opposite, okay? Your worldview is not karma and it's not the universe putting good out and putting back to you. The Bible tells you exactly this. When you do good for the almighty God who created you, there is a world that rejects that good because it wants its own power. It doesn't want to be subject to a God who made it. It doesn't want to hear about a God who made it. It doesn't want to worship a God who made it. So you shine light into the darkness, and the darkness will resist you. And so Peter prepares you for that, and he says, if you're going to do good in this world, be ready for external opposition to come your way. Look at verse 13. Now, who will want to harm you if you're zealous or eager to do good? It's a good question. He's like, I mean, basically, generally, if you're zealous to do good, like that's the zeal of your heart, I want to do as much good and as much right with my life as I can to please God. That's what I want to do with my whole life. If you're zealous to do good, he says, for the most part, who would want to harm you? But he does open up a new topic, harming you. Because look what he says, verse 14. But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Look at the words he's introduced now. Harm, suffer, threats. And then look down at, um, in the middle of verse 16. Then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed for what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it's better to suffer for doing good if that's what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. So he doesn't say in this particular passage that it's a guarantee that if you do good, it's always going to be met with suffering. He doesn't say that, but he does say, if God wants that to be the case, you continue to do the good. That doesn't mean you're on the wrong track if suffering comes your way, because we live in a world, we live in a, the kind of a world that does not naturally believe in or follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So look what he says. Verse 13. Who'd want to harm you if you're zealous to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what's right, 
God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Why? Why should I not worry or be afraid if someone threatens me? Because I don't like to be threatened. It scares me. I don't like it when I get threatened. For a long time, I wouldn't even go to the city of Los Angeles just because I thought the whole place was threatening. And then my wife went up there so many different times for work and business, and she was like, I'll take you to a taco shop there. It's going to be okay. And I was like, ah, I just feel threatened when I get there kind of thing. And now I love it. She can take me there all she wants. We even walked the streets at 11 p.m. to go to a Hillsong uh, conference one night and walked around at 11 p.m. in Los Angeles. I was so proud of myself. I'm like, I'm not even afraid. Grandma, hi, how are you? You know, to their credit, it was very safe. Grandma was walking by herself. But it, the point is this. It's not, what is Peter telling us not to worry or be afraid when they threaten you? When threats come against you and I, our tendency is to want to stop the threat. So we want to conform to that person's threat against us. Stop that or else because we want to stop the threat coming our way. So you and I are all prone to that when someone puts pressure on us and says, stop talking about Jesus. Stop reading your Bible. They call you a Bible basher or they call you a Jesus freak or something like that. And they call you and they say, stop that. I don't want to hear it and I don't like it. I don't like you talking about it. I don't want to hear it. You guys have people in your life like this all the time. So he says, if you listen to those threats, you will have a tendency to conform to that and you will go silent and stop doing good. But look what he says. Don't worry or be afraid of their threats, verse 15. Instead, here's what you and I need to do. Here's the worldview of a believer who's following Jesus Christ. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. This is a famous verse, by the way, 1 Peter 3, 15. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. How many of you have ever heard 1 Peter 3, 15 um, as a verse in and of itself? A lot of you have done then what's called apologetics, right? This is one of the most famous verses for apologetics, which says, be ready to give a defense or an answer or an explanation when somebody asks you about the Bible or Jesus or God or whatever you might believe about your theology. And it definitely does say that. But when you put it in the larger context, it says more than that. Notice what he says. People will threaten you to stop you from living for God and following Jesus and doing good in this world, so they will threaten you. I used to think, no, come on. They will threaten you? And then I saw a video that changed my whole opinion. It was food that had been packed that was being dropped off in a country. And as the helicopter dropped off, massive amounts of food and all the starving people were on the camera and you could see them. As the starving people went in to go get the food, a jeep pulled in and and guys with machine guns got out and shot the hungry people and took the food. And I was like, what? The world's doing good to feed starving people and guys with machine guns are killing them and taking the food? What's going on? Those are guys that wanted what? Power. They didn't want you feeding hungry people because that puts a transaction in place where they lost the power. They lost the the acclaim. They lost the devotion of the people. They want to take the food to themselves and say, if you want the food, then you've got to come and do what we tell you to do because we've got the guns. And then you just play that out now in our culture. It's not people with machine guns. It's people who want your vote. And they tell you, you count for me. You sign up on my list. You say that you're one of us. 
I get to count you as my viewership or my sign up or my subscription or whatever it might be. You're my product. And I, you belong to me. I hold the goods and you come and get the goods from me. And you think, man, if I live like that, I need to be careful because I'll start answering to that person to try to get their goods. I'll start answering them because I want their leadership in my country. I'll start taking my identity and lowering it and get into arguments and fist fights because I've grown divisive and confused about who I am and what my role is in this world. Peter's discipling us to Jesus, and he says this, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life, not the people who make threats against you. Don't start giving in to political threats or the people with the power or the people who come and try to threaten your way of life or the people who are threatening to take over or the people who say they hate you and they don't agree with you or the people who want to judge to be do this or say that or get this law passed or whatever it might be. There's threats all over the place. Don't start giving in to those threats. You do this. This is what Peter says. Let me disciple you to do good in the midst of a troubling time, right? If you're not listening, Peter's like, please listen. America, you're in a time of trouble. And if you're not careful, you're going to be standing there like two childish men throwing fists at each other verbally, just acting like children. And you're going to divide up and start saying judgmental things toward one another. Don't let that happen to the body of Christ. Children, listen. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And then someone will ask you why you're so different. And when they ask you, explain it. A couple things in there that I think are really important. Number one, you must worship. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. You must worship. It's good to remember this. Romans chapter 1 says this. When people refuse to worship the God who created them, they don't then become, become a secularist, which is a non-worshipper. Our country offers you that option. The Bible does not. There is no such thing in God's world that is a person who doesn't worship. There is no such person that doesn't worship. Everyone worships. If you refuse to worship the God who created you, you will worship things that are created or even your own personal autonomy, you who was created, you'll worship yourself and you'll say, enjoying life and happy days is about me getting my needs met and my, my life satisfied. You'll put a false god on the throne. It might be you or it might be Mother Nature or a lot of my surf friends. It might be karma and the universe and, and, and the, the best waves that I can find. I'll travel the world for that or whatever. And, and you will worship. So he says, you must worship. First thing he says. Second thing he says is you must worship Christ as Lord. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you now honor him as the Son of God, as the Lord of your life, which means now he tells you what life is all about. So you do have a worldview that says, I want to enjoy life and live many happy days. You want that and I want that. It's just we disagree on how to find that from the world. We agree with Peter. If I'm going to enjoy life and have many happy days, it's going to come from this. 
I'm going to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. I'm going to surrender to him. I'm going to humble myself, and I'm going to say, Lord Jesus, you teach me by your word how to live this life. Call me to character. Call me to self-sacrifice, not self-satisfaction. Call me to crucifixion. Call me to love that cost me something. Call me to give myself up for the good of those who are around me. Cause me to die to myself, not try to fulfill myself. Life will be found in the death of me. Not the personal autonomy of me. I didn't choose my hair and eyes and stature. I, life's a gift, and you're the giver. I'm going to answer to you. That's your worldview. And Peter disciples you to Jesus by saying, number one, you must worship. Fill your life with the activity of worship and worship Christ Jesus as your Lord. Find every way, shape, and form that you can to tell Jesus that he's in charge. Obedience, love, dedication, devotion, word, scripture, self-sacrifice. Lord, I belong to you. I belong to you. And I'm going to answer to you. You must worship Christ as Lord of what? Well, he's certainly the Lord of the universe. He's certainly the Lord over all. He's certainly the judge of the living and the dead. But what does Peter want you to know? You must worship Christ as Lord what? What does he say? Verse 15. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord what? Of your life. This is you making a decision to refuse, to refuse to worship anything or anyone, even yourself, but worship Christ Jesus as the Lord of your life for all of your days. You've got to make that choice over your own life and say, I will worship him. I know I'm going to worship somebody or something, and I'm choosing to worship Jesus as the Lord of my life. It's a personal decision, and God holds us accountable for it. Here's the beauty of it, and if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. The good news is this, they will ask. Dan had a great story while we were prepping the sermon this week. I just loved it. Dan had gone to a foreign country as a soldier and fought there for the U.S. military. And he had been in this place fighting for them. And then years later, he went back to that same place, but now he went back as a missionary for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the difference, though. By that time, the country made every foreigner coming in sign an agreement that they would not what they called proselytize. In other words, they didn't want you holding Bible studies or giving out Bibles or like a Billy Graham crusade, like talking in the name of Jesus kind of stuff. So you can come in. But this is an Islamic country, and Islam is the way of these people. And if you open your mouth about Christianity or Jesus, we're coming down hard on you. Sign here that says that you agree to that. So I'm intrigued at this point. I'm like, did you sign it? And he's like, well, yeah, I wanted to go into the country. Of course, I signed it. And he said, so me and my team went in to do all the good that we could do on this particular two-week trip, I think it was. And he said, we just worked. And it was hot. This is Middle East hot kind of thing. And he said, we are, we are digging. We're pouring concrete. We're teaching the kids, you know, how to do all this kind of stuff. We're caring for the families. We're feeding food to anybody and everybody. We're just pouring out our lives morning, noon, and night. And a, a number of days went by where they're sweating like this. And he said, none of us preached. 
None of us showed a Bible or opened a Bible. None of us said a word. We just, we just sweated ourselves out for these people. And he said, finally, we could hear the murmurings. We knew there was murmurings going on. And after so many days went by, this little group of men as representatives finally approached us. And they knew that he was the leader and that the others were around him. And they said, we have a question for you. We know something to be true. We've understood it for years. All Americans hate us and want to kill us. Americans, our government has told us, Americans hate us and want us dead, and you are Americans, and you somehow seem to want us to thrive. or You're doing nice things for our kids, nice things for our, you know, and they kind of went over all the wonderful stuff that they were doing. And Dan said, we had not opened a Bible or our mouth at that point. And he said, the leader of those men looked at me and he said, you must tell us, why are you here doing these things? And I'm so intrigued at that point. I was like, did you break the covenant? And, you know, Dan goes, well, at this point, I'm not proselytizing. I'm answering a question, right? <laughs> he said, so me and the team gave a full presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he had changed our lives and why he's worthy and that he's the son of God, the creator. And, and we laid it all out in answer to their, we took the opportunity point is this. When you are doing good unto the Lord God Almighty and you're living a life of devotion to him, it is so outstanding as the light of the world that the people who don't know it see the difference in the barracks. They see the difference on your street. They see the difference in roommates. They see you. They see the difference in the kitchen and in the backyard. They see it. They go, you know what? This person is not into self-satisfaction as their way of life. They're into actually self-sacrifice for the good of others. Why? You must tell me. Why do you live like that? And Peter says, when they ask, it'll be a timely answer. And you will say, because I worship Christ as Lord of my life. And here's a principle. You can nail it down. You and I become like who we worship. And if you worship yourself, you're going after the flesh. If personal autonomy is your God, you are going to become more and more fleshly. And I promise you this, your flesh will never be satisfied, no matter how much it has. The flesh is never satisfied. But the Bible tells us the flesh then must be crucified. Your flesh will never be satisfied. You dethrone it and you worship Christ. And as you do, your flesh will be crucified. You will not want to live for your own personal desires. You will want to live for the glory of God and the good of those who are around you. And you will begin to do as much good as you can with this life. Because your worldview is, I will answer to the one who knit me together in my mother's womb, gave his one and only son that I might have life, and I'm going to see him face to face. And you will just say, I want to do all the good that I can with this life. I want to respond to you, Lord. I'm dependent upon you. Peter's discipling us to Jesus with these thoughts. And so look what he says, verse 16. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. He's still talking about character. If we're going to be same team, if we're going to face external opposition, if we're going to get through this together, we've got to have gentleness and respect at the core of who we are. Keep your conscience clear. Like, own it to yourself. You, you own it. Gentleness and respect. 
Then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. So remember verse 17. It's better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. So external opposition is going to come our way. All right. My notes here. um, Okay. (laughs) The next few verses are somewhat confusing. So I'm going to just give you a quick explanation, but I want to stay with Peter's line of thought. Look at verse 18. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. So notice that's who you follow. Suffering for us so that we would get the benefit. How do you live for your wife, your husband, your kids, your neighbors, your friends, your churchmates? You, you take the cost, you take the difficulty to give them something good. If it was kids ministry, you would say, I'll give up of my time and I'll be trained and I'll work through uncomfortability. And someone would say, why would anybody work for kids ministry? How much do they pay you to do that? And you say, nothing. In fact, I have to pay them 10% for the privilege of serving those kids. You, following Jesus, you bear the cost. You take the hardship upon yourself to give the benefit to somebody else. Verse 18, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. So that makes sense to us. What Jesus did for us is the way of our life. But then this gets a little cryptic. Verse 19. So he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Verse 20. Those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. If you're not confused yet, let's read on. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you. Not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. And it is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we stop there and we're like, what in the world is going on? Peter, I don't understand what you're saying. Okay, here's what he's saying. Christ has already walked the path for you and I. And therefore, you and I follow in that same path of Jesus gave himself up for the benefit of others. So you and I are walking that same path. Then he says, remember, this is about the victory that God won for us. And that's where he starts to talk about fallen angels. So in verse 19, he went and preached to spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. You have to remember back at the time of Noah why the judgment waters fell on the earth. Genesis 6, 5 told us the wickedness of man had grown so uh, complete throughout the earth that it was like worse than Mad Max. It was like everybody was personal autonomy. I will get what I want and I'll kill you for it. And the earth was just a place of, of murder and difficulty. And he says the influence that was happening was fallen angels, spirits that were having their way on the earth. These, these spirits were so wicked 
that God took them and he confined them in a place of confinement. And it says, when Jesus finally rose from the dead, he went to those spirits who were kept in prison from the time of Noah when the wickedness was so far all. He said it was so bad that the entire human race, only eight people got in the ark. Eight out of the millions on earth during that time. So Peter's saying, look, look at the lesson. This isn't about you living your life the way you want to and doing what's right in your own eyes. If you do that, the world will disintegrate into into such disaster the the fallen angels are more than happy to help participate in that kind of fallenness and they will spread wickedness throughout this world like a cancer and peter says remember when jesus rose from the dead he went back and he preached his victory to those fallen angels that were being held in captivity and you'll remember this only eight people were saved out of that that got into the ark and then he says remember this the waters he says a baptism, not removing dirt from your body, but baptism is a response to God from a clean conscience, and it's effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then verse 22, look at it. Now Christ has gone to heaven, and he's seated in the place of honor next to God, and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. He said Jesus went, and he preached his victory to those that were held in confinement, and then he went to heaven and God seated him at his right hand where now he is worshipped by all of the beings that recognize his authority and Peter's calling you and I and he says, man, when the waters of judgment fell on the earth, only those that were in the ark rose above judgment. So he says, water equals judgment. The ark equals what? What is he saying? If only eight people got in the ark and got above the waters of judgment, he's asking his people to do what? To get in what? To get in Christ. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. It is the only escape from certain judgment. As the ark rose above the waters of judgment in that day and saved Noah and his family, so Jesus has conquered sin and death and risen above the waters of judgment. We pass through those waters in baptism, literally dying to our sin in the judgment and rising to life in, by faith in Jesus Christ. And by your faith in Jesus Christ, the victory is now yours. Peter is preaching victory to his people and he's reminding them if you're going to continue to do good in troubling times, in the atmosphere that we live in of conflict, then you and I are gonna to have to remember that we are living in victory through faith in Jesus Christ. He is victorious. You haven't seen it all come to fruition yet, so you live by faith until you see it face to face. You and I gotta commit ourselves to living and doing good and right even in the midst of our times till we see him face to face. So he's gonna wind things up now in chapter four and we're gonna cover it pretty briefly. Chapter four, verse one, so then, I told you he was a preacher, right? And said, finally, two and a half chapters ago? Okay. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must, and now he's going to say, watch out, because the enemy is not just outside you, the enemy is inside you. Look what he says, verse 4-1. One, one. Since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you've suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. He's now talking about the internal battle 
that you and I are facing. And I just like to just pause here for just a minute and um, and just say something to you. Just just real like just stop stop whatever you're thinking about for just a minute and let me say something to you. The, the internal battle um, is very very real. And as hard as it is to tell you this, you are not ever going to be finished with the internal battle that Galatians 5 describes and Romans chapter 7 and 8 describe. You're not going to be finished with the internal battle until your final breath. So the fact that you're sitting here today with breath in your lungs and, and a soul that's responding uh, in a body right now means that you still are called to do battle internally against your sin nature and I know what can happen sometimes it just gets so old and so tiring to fight the same battle what feels like over and over and over again and so if you're not careful if I'm not careful you and I can just hit the pause button on internal spiritual growth and just say I just it is what it is and I am who I am I'm always going to be irritable I'm always going to be angry. I'm always going to fall to lusts. I'm always just going to give in to personal desires and satisfactions. I'm always just going to want to see that or look at that or say that or do that. And you're just going to, instead of crucifying your flesh, you're going to seek to manage it and make peace with it. And you're going to press the pause button on internal spiritual growth. I know it can happen. It's happened to me in various periods of my own life. So I just want to say pastorally on behalf of what Peter is saying to us today and as you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, would you please, by the Spirit of God, re-engage the internal battle against sin inside of you. Take up the battle again. David's words in Psalm 139, he says, search me, O God, Look at my heart and see if there's any wickedness going on in there. And instead, Lord, lead me in the way everlasting, the way of righteousness. I belong to you. And I'm not supposed to make peace with my flesh and peace with sin and press pause on my personal spiritual growth. It is your internal spiritual growth, trusting Jesus at that level in your heart. Lord, I repent. It's not right that I would talk like that. It's not right that I would look at that. It's not right that I would give a thought moment to that. It's not right that I would feel that that's okay in my life. It's not of you. It's not of your word. It's not who you've made me to be. I repent. How many times should you repent of sin? Peter said to Jesus, should I do it seven times, Lord? And he said, I tell you 70 times seven forgiving your brother of sin. It's a constant till the last breath that you breathe. It is a battle you must fight and it is a battle you must win because you can win it because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. And the Lord has set us free to become like Jesus Christ from the inside in my heart to actually want to do good, to want to do right and then to live it out with my hands as well. So with your attention this morning, I just want to say, can we nail that down today for sure? That you will take the pause button off of internal spiritual growth and start opening your heart to the Lord and saying, Lord, I want to repent at a heart level. 
not just at, at, a, at a hands level or feet level in my life. I want to go back to the source. The, the heart is the wellspring of life. So Peter says then, I think he's saying something similar to what Paul said in Romans 6, 11. You should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. I think that's what he's saying here in these verses. Verse 2, notice what he says then. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you'll be anxious to do the will of God. You've had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy. Their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties and their terrible worship of idols. Everyone worships. What were these people worshiping? Immorality. So they figured, if I can break as many rules as possible. Lust. If I can satisfy my body's feelings as much as possible. Feasting. If I can eat as much, I'll I'll, I'll try to eat my feelings. Drunkenness. Man, if I can just get my hands on some stuff that makes me feel better or feel differently and I can ease the pain. Wild parties, man, I want a high, I want adrenaline, like, let's go, come on. And he says, and their terrible worship of idols. These are to be repented of. So Peter says, don't fall to these false worships. Verse 4, of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do. So they slander you, but remember... Right? That's a form of suffering, slander. But remember, verse 5, that they will have to face God. Judgment. Responsible life unto Him. That's who you are now. Who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. And that is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. He says, that's why we've been preaching the good news. Don't worry about people who believe the good news and died. He said, so although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God and the Spirit. The victory is theirs. They've finished their race, and they're in victory with Jesus. You're not yet in victory with Jesus, so you've got a battle to fight. Internal, external, same team, character, humility, tenderness. You and I need to pull together as the body of Christ. We're living stones, a spirit house. Do you know where judgment is going to begin? Judgment's going to begin in the White House, amen? That's a lie. The Bible does not say judgment's going to begin with the White House. Where does the Bible say judgment begins? Judgment begins with who? With us, with the household of God. So you and I have to take that judgment to ourselves and repent and begin to live for him. And every, we got to do all the good that we can right now. We're still running our race. We're still running our race. So verse 4, Your former friends are surprised. Verse 6, we preach the good news. Verse 7, the end of the world is coming soon. And now he's going to list what good looks like. If we're going to do good, we got to know what it looks like. So here we go. We'll finish out. These are the things to nail down for this week. I'm going to challenge you at the end of this list to say, will you at great personal sacrifice do something good for another believer this week? Okay? And here's your list really that you're going to be choosing from that might be good things that you might do. Okay? So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of the world is coming soon. Peter wrote that almost 2,000 years ago. Do you think it's sooner now, yes or no? Yes, it is. So this is more true now than it was at the time that he wrote it when it was true. So this is something to wake up to and say, what am I doing with my life? The end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, 
Be earnest and discipline in your prayers. One of the good that you and I can do right now is praying for people and praying over other people. Most important of all, verse 8, continue to show deep love for each other because love covers over a multitude of sins. If you know somebody who is a wretched, terrible, awful sinner and you're mad at them and you don't like them, you don't love them and you don't care about them because of their sins, guess what Peter wants you to do because of your love for Jesus? He wants you to love them and cover over their sins with the blood of Christ. He wants you to put on Christ-colored glasses and look at them anew. I was looking at you as a terrible, wretched, awful person, but now I'm looking at you with sympathy because I too have fallen short of the glory of God. I need Jesus and you need Jesus. Show deep love for each other. You know why? Because love covers over those terrible sins of mine and yours. Pull together. Same team, Peter's saying. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. Prayers, deep love, home, food, shelter. Then he says, use your gifts. God has given each of you a gift, verse 10, from his great variety of spiritual gifts, so use them well to serve one another. Two categories of gifts, which is you? Verse 11, do you have the gift of speaking? There's a lot of speaking gifts, prophecy and tongues and preaching and teaching and pastoral ministry. And um, do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Second category, do you have the gift of helping, helping others? Then do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Peter's done, right? No, he's not done. But he does want you to say this. Put your hand in the air if you think your spiritual gifts might fall more into the speaking category. Something to do with using your words a lot. Yeah, a woman back there, I like it. Uh, many of you women would probably have this because you have... Uh, three times the amount of words that men have in any given day. So you probably have some gift related to speaking. But how many of you feel, on the other hand, like your gifts is not so much using your words as much as it is your hands? Like, I'm a doer. I'm a practical, like, get it done, tasky kind of person. Your gifts fall into that category. Yes? Thinking that? Yeah. I just want to make sure I saw that back there. Yep. Yeah, Absolutely. Peter says there's these two giant categories. He says there's a variety of all these spiritual gifts. But if they fall into the speaking category, he says, do you have the gift? Of, then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Measure your words to say, are my words like godly words that are going out? But if your gift is helping others, then do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies, that he gives to you. And then everything you do, whether it's speaking or doing or both, or maybe you got all kinds of gifts, everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ because what you want and what I want is all glory and power and honor to go to his name, not mine, not the church's name, not anybody else, but the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church. We want the power and glory and honor to go. Even if the drug lords want to steal the food that we, we packed, we want him to get the credit for it, him to get the glory of the the good that you and I are doing in our lives. Amen. All right. 
So we are going to move toward communion, and I'm going to let Peter finish us out. So would you stand together as we read Peter's final words together in, verse, in chapter 4? It's not, he still has another chapter in him, but with chapter 4 before us, I want to read these to you because it's like a summary, and I just want you to, to receive it, okay? Dear friends, then, so just dear friends, I, I would probably say it like fellow shoreliners, people that I love, neighbors, family, people that I've known for a long time, you guys that are here, like, we love each other. We are on the same team. The Shoreline Church is a thing that God decided to bring into existence, and we're all here, and we're all together. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through as if something strange was happening to you. Instead, be very glad, because these trials will make you a partner with Christ in his sufferings so that you'll have wonderful joy when you see his glory when it's revealed to all the world. When your race is done and you're in victory, you're going to have great joy with him because you suffered for him. If you're insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you'll be blessed for the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. But if you suffer, however, it must not be for murder or stealing or trouble or prying into other people's affairs. It is no shame to suffer for being a Christian, so praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. For the time has come for judgment, and judgment must begin with the White House. Did I say it right? No, I did not. The time has come for judgment, and judgment must begin with God's household. It starts here. And the suffering and the divisiveness that our nation is in is a life under pressure for you and I, and the time to respond is now. It's time to respond to do all the good that we can right now to change the course of how we've been living. It's time right now. The time has come for judgment, and it begins with the household of God. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news. And as the Bible says, if the righteous are barely saved, What's going to happen to godless sinners? And Peter summarizes in 419, and I just want to let this fall over you. So just receive this. If, if closing your eyes helps, then close your eyes. If just breathing into this moment, 1 Peter 419. If you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right. all the energy that God supplies. Keep on doing it. And entrust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. You were created by a faithful God who is to be worshiped, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He will never fail you. He will never forsake you, ever. He has won the victory over sin and death already and he is your God. He's taking care of your life so you can trust him and you must worship him as Lord over your life. And so in this moment, I want you to <clears throat> consider whether you will take up this challenge. You're probably gonna do a lot more than this, but at least this, will you intentionally do one good thing this week for another believer in Jesus' name, expecting nothing in return and will you do that good thing at personal cost to yourself and pay the price willingly 
Will you do one act this week of doing good for another believer? And will you make sure that it costs you something? And will you expect nothing in return purely as an act of worship to Christ Jesus as Lord? If you will say yes to that, would you raise your hand up in the air right now? The Lord is watching those who do right. He's listening to their prayers. Let's seal this commitment with taking communion today. Yes. Thank you. Would you take the uh, symbolic bread and cup? I don't really think it's true bread and cup, but you'll be happy to know that this is the last amount of these bread and cup that we have. We'll be moving on. But if you can wrestle that little wafer out of the top of that, get that in your hand. It is edible and it does symbolize bread, so that's good. And then if you can just open that cup with, hopefully without it going all over you, for your kids, for your husband or wife, that's awesome. In all seriousness, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. And so when we take the bread here in just a moment, we're gonna be remembering that Jesus took the cost and paid the price for our sins. And then he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so the cup represented an establishment of a new promise, a new testament, a new agreement between God and man. So the bread reminds us that our sins are forgiven, but the cup reminds us of the relationship that's established forever. So Jesus said, as often as you drink it, remember me. So we're about to crush this bread in our teeth, remembering Jesus took the pain and the cost to bring us safely home to God. He shed his blood to establish a new relationship that can never be broken. Let's pray and then let's take. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We receive the victory, Lord Jesus, that you have won for us. Only you have won it for us. Lord, you gave up your life for us. You paid the cost. You took the pain. You suffered for us to bring us the benefit of being safely home with God. And you established, Lord, a forever relationship in your own blood, the new testament, the new covenant, the new agreement that we belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who shed his blood for us. This is the body of Christ broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and eat it in remembrance of him. And this is the blood of Christ shed for you to establish the new covenant in his blood. Let's remember him as we take it together. Lord, we remember you and we worship you together in this moment, right here, right now. In Jesus' name. Learn more about the church at www.theshoreline.org or stay connected with us through Facebook at facebook.com slash theshorelinechurch.